Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers to the engineers to the business people behind the scenes, over the years, every member of the pro audio corner of the music industry has become family to me, and it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in pro audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Today I'm talking with Andrew Sheps. He's a music producer, mixing engineer, and record label owner based in the UK. I didn't know that you had a record label. A lot of people don't know I have a record label. Uh, it's it's a very, very tiny record label. It was started for one particular artist, and then I tried to expand it and had not a big roster by any stretch of the imagination, but it's basically for one artist, Low Roar. Uh, I'm really involved in the records as well, but yeah, that's all the label is right now. Okay. I was surprised when I saw that. Um, I think that we met officially at a Pensado Awards. Yeah. I feel like we have to have come across each other like 80 times before yeah. that, but yes. Yeah. Because you were nominated for Tech Awards, so I knew your name, but I don't know if we'd ever like worked. To- well, we definitely hadn't worked together, but Pensado Awards, I met a lot of people through Pensado Awards that I might not yeah. have otherwise. Herb keeps talking about maybe bringing them back. We'll see if it happens. Right. One of the things I talk a lot about in the podcast is about change and change is hard and adapting to what's new. When you started your career, it was more analog and you've had to make the transition to digital and you do everything in the box now, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk just about how that transition was? And was it scary? I mean, the whole the whole change, it changed everything. Yeah, but I, from the very beginning of my career, was always looking at what was current and happening. And so when I got out of college, it was 1988, and digital had started, like CD players mm-hmm. were out there. there, there was digital around. And I immediately got a job working for a company that made a gigantic digital synthesizer, sequencer, sampler thing. So I was always kind of seeing the digital stuff as it was happening. So for me, the moving into the mixing completely in the box, which is we're talking 25 years after that or something mm-hmm. like that, 20 years anyway, um, was more about just changing my workflow than it was analog to digital. Like, I really don't care about the analog to digital debate. I think that it's certainly at this point, it's overblown and ridiculous. And it's just an excuse for a lot of things like, uh-huh. oh, well, if you did it analog, it would be this. Or The difference now is so small that There are people who make amazing sounding things in the digital domain and people who make horrible sounding things in the analog domain and vice versa. Just it doesn't have anything to do with it. So for me, it was more about just trying to have a completely different workflow. And that was scary. Um, And it was more the perception from some people about what I was doing. Because I mean, I certainly wasn't the first. One of the reasons I decided I could do it was because Chad Blake had already been doing it for years. And he'd already won an engineering Grammy while mixing completely in the box. So that wasn't really it. It was more the perception because you have a big analog console and a wall full of gear and people find that really impressive. And then you show up just with a laptop and you're like, well, what's going on here? But (laughs) right, if it was about that, then all you got to do is go buy some stuff and then you're a mixer. So, you know, it's never been about that. And like Mm -hmm. one of the greatest engineers of all time, Al Schmidt, doesn't use gear. Really? I mean, obviously he uses amazing microphones, but like right. he doesn't EQ and he doesn't compare. He doesn't take advantage of all of this analog processing or digital processing. He's just an amazing 
his balances were better than just about anyone else on the planet. So that was it. I worked with a um, engineer who we did some classes and he showed exactly how he worked on a song that won a Grammy, right? So he showed step-by-step to this classroom of people. And I was really surprised he wanted to do that. But he said, you can show them exactly how you do it, but they're all going to bring in their own twist to it. So it's not ever going to be like what I'm showing them. Do you think that's true? Do you see that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like the worst word on the internet is tricks. You know, Uh this person's going to show you his tricks for making vocals sound good. The only trick is knowing how to listen and then knowing how to use the tools you're using, whatever they happen to be, to make it sound more like the thing you want it to be. And then I suppose the trick is that the way you want it to sound happens to be the same as what the artist wants it to sound like. Like, I mean, that's it. Yeah. So I have no problem. I do seminars. I do tons of videos. And I I always try and talk much more about the ideas and what I'm thinking and trying to get across the idea that even I would mix something totally differently every day because you start down the path on whatever you attack first, whatever you hear first is what you deal with first. And then that sets you on the path for the rest of the mix. And it's going to be different every single time. You've worked with a wide range of artists, all different sounds, right? How do you approach the artist or how does the artist approach you to make sure that you're giving them what they want? Because it's got to be, you know, Adele's got to be different than Metallica, different than Green Day, different than Michael Jackson. So with such a variety, is there one thing that you keep consistent through everything or how do you do that? Um, It's not really about the genre. I mean, you know, Black Sabbath was totally different than Metallica. And you'd say, well, they're sort of similar. Like, well, no, they're not. And what is important to different artists aesthetically. And But I never approach a mix worrying about the genre either. It's always about how it's going to feel when you get to a certain part of the song and all of that. And that's the same on anything. Mm-hmm. So that stuff never, ever, ever changes. And you're always just trying to learn what it is the artist is listening for so you can give them what they want. Right. But that could be different song to song, even with the same artist. But you you do get a feel for like what they respond to. And have you ever had to mix a certain way that the artist wants it to sound like that you don't necessarily agree with? Um, I mean, to us, I don't know. There's some people who mix who say like, well, I sent the mix and then if they want it changed, well, then that's no longer what I want. But I don't ever feel like, oh, I nailed it the first time. And if they want changes, you know, they're just making it worse. Like that's not at all how I think about it. Uh So it doesn't really matter what I want. But what I hope is that there's at least a big part of the vision that's shared between myself and the artist, because otherwise it's not even that I don't necessarily like what you end up with. It's just it's really hard to do. If you don't understand why they want stuff changed, then you have no idea if you're making the change in a way that they're actually going to like. And it starts to get like specific and irrelevant. They'll start to tell you to turn something up a certain amount and you have no idea why they're doing it. And you just do it and say, well, okay, that's louder now. Like it's (laughs) got to all be about. I mean, what I like best are vague comments in a way. I don't Mm want to be told something specific, but even if I am, I will always try and figure out, well, why are they saying that? What is it about the mix that's not working that makes them say, turn up the tambourine? And there are lots, there are a million different ways you can fix the, I want to hear the tambourine better note. Uh So it doesn't have to be (laughs) volume or, yeah, but you don't, I don't have to agree with it. I will definitely say if I feel as though 
something that we're changing is affecting something else that they may not notice or Mm -hmm. making it really not work in a way. But again, it's not up to me to make that decision. It's not my record. Right. You have to have relationships with the artists you work with, right? To be able to know enough about what they're looking for to be able to get it for them. Kind of. I mean, sometimes my relationships are nothing except a couple of emails before I start and then mix notes. I mean, there there are lots of people I've mixed for that I've never actually spoken to. So it's, yeah, you just, that relationship is whatever that relationship happens to be. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And in some cases, there's almost no relationship except for the mix notes. Wow. Okay. I'm kind of backwards on these notes. Why don't we go back to your career. Can you tell me a little bit about starting as a musician, right? You wanted to be a musician. And then how did you end up in the UK? Uh, Well, I ended up in the UK because the company I mentioned earlier that I was working for out of college, New England Digital, um, I was working for them in the LA office doing field service. So fixing the Synclaviers when they broke. Mm -hmm. And there was an opening in the London office. And I just said, yeah, I'll go. And that was it. So I moved to London for about a year and a half. And while I was here, I met my now wife, Um, and so we moved back here full time about six years ago, but we've been going back and forth, seeing her parents and family for the last 30 years. And music wise, is the sound coming out of the UK a lot different than what people are expecting to come out of the US? Are there different expectations, different sounds, different emphasis? I mean, there's always been an aesthetic that's slightly different and musically as well, but I mean, sonically... Yeah, there are things that are different, but I think like with everything, the differences are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Like everything is global at this point. Well, at least, you know, Northwestern Hemisphere global. Right. But there are differences. And I think it's really bizarre how much amazing music comes out of the UK, which, you know, population wise is tiny compared to Mm -hmm. other places like North America. But the output is sort of on a par. But uh, I don't I don't know that they're really as much of a um, aesthetic difference anymore. Okay, I'm looking at your background. So the cat tree thing is almost as prominent as the piece of gear behind you. Yeah. Well, the cat tree is to try and keep the cats from climbing on the (laughs) gear because just above it is a beam that they climb up to to jump up and go up into the crawl space. Uh Um, But they don't use it. They refuse. They just climb up and down the modular synth because that's they're cats. They do whatever they want. Do they help with your sound sometimes? No, never. No, no credits on any of your music? No, no. They're just cats. <laughs> Are you in a barn? No, no. I mean, uh, it's it's basically like a bedroom, but it's um, originally this part of the building was a uh, pigeon coop. So it's, oh, wow. it's a, upstairs above the garage, basically. Okay. Okay. And how do you like life in the UK? And can you say where you are? Because I would just butcher the name of where you are if I said it. I am in Worcestershire. Thank you. Which is spelled Worcestershire. Yeah. But it's it's like the sauce. It's where they make Worcestershire sauce. So um, I love it here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always been a bit of an Anglophile. My mom was a huge Anglophile. We got up in the middle of the night to watch the uh, Dinah's Wedding and the Silver Jubilee. And, you know, <laughs> we used to do that kind of stuff. And so I'm sure that uh-huh. planted the seed. Um Yeah, I love it. I have no problem with the climate. I mean, the climate's probably going to be more like LA was 10 years ago here in 10 years. So Mm -hmm. that's all fine. Um, I don't mind that at all. I love the communities that you have 
uh, once you get outside of the bigger cities, because I'm out sort of in the country a bit. Uh-huh. Love the pubs, love pub culture, um, which really does not exist in the States. I mean, neighborhood bars are kind of sort of the same, but it's it's not the same at all. It's a very, very different thing. Um, yeah, I love it. And I love being close to Europe. You know, if I go do a seminar in France, like we drove one year and that's kind of cool to get in your car and drive cool. to France. Yeah. Now, has the pandemic really affected what you're doing, your work, any of that? Well, I mean, I've been mixing at home for 20 something years. I've had a studio at home basically my entire career. I've always had a place to be able to do stuff at home. Um, So in that sense, absolutely not. I had my mix room set up here before the pandemic and all that's changed during is I've set up for Atmos. So there's no no change there. But obviously, the entire industry ground to a halt yeah. while people figured out how they were going to record and make things that needed to be mixed. But that's kind of gotten back to normal. And that, along with the explosion of Atmos stuff, um, I'm really busy right now, which is great. That's great. Yeah. It, it, what's, what it's affected more is that I used to say yes to every single school that wanted me to come and talk. And that included going all over Europe. And I did a month in Australia, New Zealand um, in the October before the first lockdown. Uh-huh. Um, so there was lots of stuff that I was doing outside of the actual mixing. And that has stopped completely. And in some ways, it's terrible because I love doing that. Mm-hmm. Working with students and people who are just getting into it is great. And, you know, it's nice to be asked to go speak in front of a couple hundred people. Like, that's pretty cool. But at the same time, when I look back at my calendar from then, I was constantly going places. And now I can do most of it online and I can get to stay home. And that's kind of cool. I've got twice as much time in my life now. What do you do other than your music? Because I talk to everybody about what they do outside. And I've said this before, Roseman Journey, one year early in the Tech Awards, I had people volunteering all the time. And there was one year I had a horrible volunteer who was hitting up engineers trying to pitch her music. And she said, you need to interview people. And I had never done it. So I talked, how do I do this? And so her whole emphasis was find out what they do besides music. They have to do other things. They have to have hobbies. They have to cook. They have dogs, work out something. And that's really been great for me. And I've hired some perfect people based on, I know it's great that you're dedicated to your craft, but what else do you do? So- what do you do other than your craft? What do I do? Well, I mean, I'd love to say I'm an avid amateur astronomer, but I'm terrible at it. And it's cloudy here way too much. <laughs> so I have a telescope and I barely ever get it out now, but I'm I'm really into that. Um, since the lockdown, I have gotten super geeky. There's a program called Soundflow that lets you automate Pro Tools to do all sorts of things. So uh-huh. I've been programming. like It's like a second job, basically. So all the time I used to be spent traveling and going places and speaking has all been spent writing code to make my own life easier (laughs) and actually publishing apps for other people. And so that's been really, really cool. Um, I play board games. I got a group of people. We play board games, which is fun because board games have gotten nuts like in a really good way, Uh like really complicated and interesting. Um, So there's that. And yeah, 
I don't know, hanging out with my wife. That's fun. And being outside since moving here, I do stuff outside. Like living in LA, nobody does their own yard. You can't. It's impossible. You're not allowed really. But here I am mowing three and a half acres of grass. I got a field I got to get a tractor into sometimes. Uh, Right in the middle with a neighbor of mine, we're planting about five acres of trees, which is amazing. Wow. So we put in about 150 trees yesterday morning and we got another, I don't know, 900 to go or something like that. So yeah, lots of stuff, lots of like little normal life stuff, which when I was living in LA, I didn't do a lot of. I had my family, which obviously was very important and took up time. Right. And I had my work and that was kind of it. And now, yeah, a lot broader now, I think. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like that. I like the tree planting. It's very cool. Yeah, every little bit helps and it's a tiny bit, but yeah. Yeah, I have a friend in Australia who um, offered to plant a tree in different people's names, a friend of mine from college. So I said, yes, plant one for me. So he knows exactly where it is. And every so often he sends me a picture because they're trying to reforce an area that no longer has trees. So I think anybody who wants to do that is cool. Yes, plant trees. Yes. I know that you worked on the road for a while early in your career. You were a tech for Michael Jackson. I don't remember who else you were working with. Stevie Wonder. and Stevie Wonder, yeah. yeah. But you decided on studio life. What made you move from being on the road to studio? Well, I since I discovered that making records was a thing, that's what I'd wanted to do. So I didn't make a decision to go on the road. I just got some work to go on the road. And uh-huh. it was compared to what I would be doing if I were in a studio, which would have been running or maybe assisting. It was mm-hmm. really good money. I already had a son, which obviously the being on the road part was terrible for that for the family side of it, but it was just, it was money I really couldn't turn down. And it was exciting, you know, when you're in your early twenties going on the road, especially with people like that, that's super exciting. So Mm -hmm. you see most of the world and get paid to do it and hang out at these concerts. You know, there is downside obviously, and it's a lot of work, but I basically just realized like, Hey, I still want to make records and this is turning into something that could be a career. And I don't think I really want to do that. And my wife was like, you know, you can't tour full time. Uh We can't have a family if we are doing that. So it, it was just a combination of stuff, but it was more several times in my career, I've had to kind of get back on track, like, hey, but I want to make records. So let's go ahead and, and do that. So how did you go from wanting to be a musician to now being an engineer? Just discovering that that existed. I mean, I don't know that I really wanted to be a professional musician. Um, I just I played instruments, but I played uh, French horn and trumpet. I played brass instruments, but I loved rock bands. So immediately there was this thing of like, well, I can't really be in the kind of band that I would want to be in. And I'm not good enough to be a jazz player or a classical player. So I knew pretty early on that that was not going to be a career. But Mm -hmm. I was always a geek, always loved knowing how stuff worked. And then when I saw my first recording console, that was it, you know, done, game over. I knew that I wanted to be the person who could do that. My son, my youngest son, who is now 25, he came to me when he was like 17, 18. He said, I want to be an engineer. I said, no. And he said, but I like music. I said, no, you can't do that because you have to have a passion and you have to be willing to work long hours with no money for a long time. And it's like basketball. A lot of people want to play. They want to be in the NBA, but there are only a few who actually make it. He wasn't happy with my answer. And now he's a baker and he's he loves baking. So that ended well. But 
what kind of qualities do you think? You know, there's there's so many kids in school now who want to be an engineer. So what qualities do you think they need to have to be able to actually make it in this business and and not necessarily be a star and win Grammys, but make it enough that they're able to support themselves and their family? Well, I think the first thing is something you alluded to. You have to have it's not it's not even just having a passion for it. It has to be like impossible for you to not do it. Right. Basically, that's that's where you have to start. And then you have to be a good hang. Like the the knowing how to engineer and make records and all of that kind of stuff, that's a given. Everybody who's trying to do it knows how to run Pro Tools and hopefully knows how to set up some microphones. Like that part, you have to take that for granted and you have to be someone that people want to work with. And then past that, hopefully you've got something creative that other people don't have so you can collaborate and things like that. But yeah, you have to absolutely need to do it or you'll die. And you have to be someone that people can get along with. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, there there are really successful producers that bands make one record with and they're great records and they never really want to work with that person again. And so nothing is 100%. But for me, those are the two things. You know, when you're in the room with students, you can tell in about five seconds who's got a really good chance to make it. And you haven't heard anything Mm -hmm. yet. It's about attitude and the ability to listen and know what's important in any situation and always have perspective and all that kind of stuff. I think you can learn it, but I also think a lot of people are just born with that innate ability to hang. And when I do the speed mentoring, a lot of times the mentors will talk about being a good hang and the students are just like, that's not what they're expecting is the answer. They always think it's going to be something based on what they're learning in school or some skill they have. No, no. That's like everybody's got the skills. Who can't learn to run Pro Tools? You know, it, it's that's not it. Obviously, yeah. you want to be great at it and that takes time and you've got to apply yourself and that's the thing. But that stuff is not, that's not it. That's like the baseline. If you don't have that, you don't have a chance. Once you have that, now you can compete with everybody else who's got that. Right. And, you know, I think the industry is so small that if you can't be a good hang, nobody's going to hire you. And someone that you're working with at a low level at some studio could be like a high powered boss in the, you know, in another year or two. So you have to be nice to everybody too. It's hard to burn bridges in this industry. The people who are in the industry who are not good hangs are extraordinarily talented. There are very few people who are like, yeah, they're okay with it. And I don't really like them, but they work. Like there aren't that many. Right, right. You know, it's it's a cool industry. Let's talk a little bit about your career. Okay, so I talked to someone who we both know, and he told me that I should ask you about Michael Jackson giving you a basketball net. So what's that story? Well, I mean, I don't even know if Michael knew he did that, but basically we were mixing the history record. And so we were at record one and at Larrabee, I'm always forget which is which, Larrabee North, which is now um, where Manny has his setup. So we were in, and I think we were in Manny's room in the back was one of the rooms we had. But anyway, we were there for a very long time. Everything with Michael takes a very long time. So we, at one point, I don't even remember who said we should have a basketball hoop in the parking lot, but said like, why why, can't we get a basketball hoop in the parking lot? Because we had the whole place booked out. There were only a few cars. There was always room and there was downtime and we wanted a hoop. So they, the studio said, well, you know, you can get one and we'll set it up. But like, we're not buying you a basketball hoop. Like, that's <laughs> not going to happen. Uh-huh. So we spent the, you know, $200 or whatever it was to get a basketball hoop. One of those roll around ones, you fill the right. bank with water and that's yeah. it. But then the session ended. 
And it's like, well, what are we doing with that? Like, we could have just left it at the studio, but it was taking up a parking space and they didn't necessarily even really want it. And so I asked around, like, does anybody else want this thing? Because if not, I got cartage coming and I'll put it in the back of the truck and I'll put it in my driveway. And so I took it home and nobody minded. They all knew what was going on. So I had the, I mean, it's not Michael Jackson's basketball hoop, but it's, you know, (laughs) from that session. And that was at my house until we moved to the UK. And then Kamran V, who Uh I'm sure you know, know, um, who is a gigantic Michael Jackson nerd has it. And now it's at his rehearsal spot. So it's in the car park at his rehearsal place. Oh, I have to check that out next time. Do you have any really great memories with Michael Jackson and working with him? Just how ridiculously talented he was. I mean, you know, there's no singer I will ever work with who's as good as him. It's impossible. Uh, Yeah, just the the dedication and the focus and hearing the finished product in his head the entire time. I mean, I think it's easy because he didn't really play an instrument. It's easy to sort of think of him as someone who's maybe he had an idea for a song, but then other people did everything. And then he just came in and sang and he could dance. But he would beatbox you the entire rhythm track and then he would sing you all the parts all the music he would he could sing string arrangements one part at a time though he didn't always do the string arrangements but like Uh that's how in depth his knowledge of what he wanted to have happen both musically and sonically on a song everybody's just trying to realize his vision and then he would sing and you know holy shit we're allowed to say shit yeah oh you can say anything you want yes all right that's fine Um, So it was complete in his head. It's like he had the whole picture and he just needed to be able to express it well enough for you guys to be able to translate it. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, like with anything, there were collaborations and surprises would happen along the way. And, you know, it wasn't he wasn't a control freak about it either, but it was it definitely wasn't right till it was right. There was no compromise ever about anything. Well, it's the way it should be. Yeah. See, I have a lot of ideas in my head, but I can't there's so often I can't explain it to people like they're perfect inside. but trying to get the point across is a tough thing to do. Yeah. Especially with music. I can't imagine trying to do that, but Yeah. Well, that's the, you know, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. There, there are no words that mean anything. Yeah. when you're trying to describe what you want. Yeah. Do you have favorite artists you've worked with? Um, no. I love all my children. <laughs> I, I mean, it it's you know, the, hey, I'm not asking you what artist do you like the least. No, well, those <laughs> questions I don't even entertain. But I mean, obviously, I not obviously, I was a huge Chili Peppers fan since high school. So to be able to work with them on multiple records was amazing. Um, they're great. I love those guys, and you know, really creative times and great. That was awesome. Um, and then, you know, the things that, that I mixed that were just sort of insane. So it's nothing to do with, you know, anything to do with except the fact that I got to push up a fader and there was Ozzy Osbourne. And like, uh-huh. it doesn't sound like Black Sabbath. It is Black Sabbath. So there are a lot of moments in my career that are just, I can't quite believe that I'm working on something like that. I totally get it. I was just thinking the other day that a lot of albums that I listened to um, in my 20s, that I really like 30s like I'm friends with these engineers you know I met Tom Dowd 
It's like, how cool is that? And never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I would be hanging out with these people. Yeah, it's amazing. And and to be honest, that's how I felt watching the Peter Jackson uh, Beatles documentary. Like you, yeah. watching them go through the process and making that record, you felt like you had that same sort of inside knowledge you get when you're working on a record. Like it right. was it was amazing. I love that. And that that's how it feels to me working on people's records. It's the best feeling. How did Andrew Shep's talks to awesome people start? It started because there was a lockdown and Fab and Guillaume at Pure Mix said, we need to do something. And I think within about two weeks, they had started up having webcasts five days a week. And so they got in touch with me because I've done a bunch of videos with them and I'm really good friends with them. And they just said, look, mm -hmm. do you want to do something? Because we need, we want to put this stuff together. And I said, yeah. And originally it was going to be called Andrew's Got a Webcam. Just like, just, <laughs> I, I have no idea what I'm going to do, uh -huh. but I'm going to do something every week. And then I decided, well, no, I'm going to interview people. And it started off where it was like an hour because it was part of this thing. So I, an hour and a half. And now they're like five and a half hours sometimes. So. I saw... The beginning of George Massenberg went and had a half day of work, came back to my computer, and you guys were still going. Yeah. How do you talk for that long? I don't know. There's just, there's that much to say with some of these people. I mean, like in, with Manny, we did it in three parts, but yeah. we must have done six and a half, seven hours, you know, and we, we skipped over a million things because what <laughs> I love about it is because there's no time limit, we can just sort of move chronologically because that's the way I structure it because it's the easiest thing mm -hmm. to do. Or we can just get stuck on something. We can talk about something for, you know, 45 minutes, if that's how long it takes. And what's great about it, and what I work really hard on, is that I will watch and read every single interview that I can get my hands on with these people so that I know the things that they say that are sort of stock answers. Because you do, you get asked the same questions sure, a lot. Yeah. And I will always make my question the thing that they usually say. So they never get a chance to just oh, say the thing they usually say. And it immediately gets them just talking and gets them thinking about stuff. And there's usually a moment in every single one of them where like, oh, right. Yeah, I never really thought about that. But that is a bit like, so I just love how in-depth and long form it is. And then I get to just hang out with these people. Right. And how long's been your longest one and who was it? So Manny was split up into three. Yeah, but... I mean, for for a single thing, I think it was Michael Brower at like five hours, 43 or something like that. But Bill Schnee was close to that. Vance Powell was close to that. Do you take bathroom breaks and come back? No, we just did. We, I mean, so every once in a while, someone's got to go, but I don't know. I've got it down. It's like, it's the perfect time. It's, for me, it's right after dinner and I take care of business. I got a cup of coffee. <laughs> I got some water. And I have yet to have to get up, I think. I think there's one where I got up to get a beer once we got to the Q&A at the end. Uh -huh. but, yeah. I can't imagine. Is there a music community in the UK like there is in LA? Is it the same kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing that's always weird to me, it's not that weird, but like you say England and everybody just thinks London. And I will tell people, hey, I, I live said in, UK. I, I didn't say London. Yeah, no, no. I know. Exactly. But a <laughs> lot of people just sort of and a lot of people, the only place they've been in England is London. So that's their picture of England. But once you get outside of the cities, England is a totally different place. It goes from urban to rural, like immediately. There are some sprawling suburb type places but uh -huh. not really like i'm surrounded by fields and i am 45 minutes from birmingham which is the second largest city and there's a town five minutes away that's got every store i could 
you know, so it's a very different place than LA. So there is a London music community based around the fact that most of the larger studios are in London, but there's also a really rich history of residential studios, where you would go and stay that are out in the country. And that's one of those is where I had all my equipment set up for a few years until they closed. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that sort of community. And then even right where I am right now, there is a musical history that's insane. I mean, like Led Zeppelin started here and lots and lots of bands, including Sabbath, started in Birmingham and The Move. And there are just so many bands. And maybe because England is smaller, people don't automatically just move to London Mm -hmm. when they get successful or whatever. They all still live here. And I see them in the pub. And it's sort of insane what an amazing community there is just in this little area. And it seems as though it's that way all over the UK. That's very cool. Were you able to really easily get into the community there? Well, I wasn't even trying to. I mean, part of what I was looking forward to in the move was not being in the middle of it. Uh LA stressed me out like crazy. You hear about all the work you're not doing. It's just, it's really not good for me. Because I'm, yeah, it's it just not good. So I thought this will be amazing. I'm going to live somewhere where nobody knows what I do. Everybody in the pub who finds out what I do just says, oh, so you don't work. And that would be great. And I would just do what I'm doing and not worry about the rest of the world. And then almost immediately met um, someone who's turned into a really good friend of mine. He's an amazing guitar player and he plays with other people. And then those people play with other people. And now I probably know, you know, 60 musicians within 10 miles a year who are all Mm -hmm. amazing. And some of them iconic and some of them completely unknown, but it doesn't matter. So it sounds a lot different than the whole community in L.A. or New York or Nashville. Yeah, I think it is because it's not like some of the musicians around here who are really, really amazing have never recorded like and they don't care. That's not what it's about. They make a living. It's about the music and the passion for the yeah. music. And not that there's and it sounds like, oh, and L.A. is no good because. No, no, no. Records. I don't mean that. But, but I've seen lots of bands in L.A. break up because someone in the band got a gig to go play with somebody else on a record and then go on tour. And that mm-hmm. happens all the time because that's why a lot of musicians are in L.A. is to have that sort of career based on recordings right. or touring. And Nashville, I think, touring maybe as much as recording. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, it's like if it turns into something, okay, amazing. But if it doesn't, like, well, we're doing it anyway. And we're supporting ourselves doing that. And it's, I think, also why people don't move away from where they were from. Mm -hmm. So it's just different. I'm not going to, I like what's going on here better, but there's certainly nothing wrong with what's going on in LA. I just love the, the difference here. What is your definition of community then? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, your communities, whoever you interact with and then whoever supports you and who you support. But that could be in anything. I That's think we've right. got a great, you know, back two years ago when you could still go to the pub. Um, we have a great community of people we know around here who don't have anything to do with my work or anything like that. And there are some people in the pub where I don't know their last names and I have no idea where they live and I will only ever see them in the pub. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And that's, you know, that's a community as much as my neighbors where we're all planting trees and doing all that kind of thing, as well as the local people that I know who are musicians that I deal with on a professional level, as well as the entire record industry. You know, those are all communities I'm part of, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I know people have different definitions and some it's just 
family and friends and others, it's the broader music industry and, and others, it's a group completely separate from music at all. Yeah. And they want they want that community that has nothing to do with what they do. Yeah, and I think I'm just all of the above. I mean, the the group of people I play board games with has nothing to do with anything else I do. Yeah. See, I can't play board games because I want to win everything. No, that's not a problem. Wanting to win is, you know, it, it's not really. You wouldn't be that into it if you didn't care. So it's, it's you just got to play them. <laughs> you got to find some. But I'm people. so competitive. I'm very very competitive. Okay, you've been in the industry for a while now. What do you do to stay current, to to be creative, to continue to evolve? Um, I'd love to say that I spent a lot of time listening to the music that's out now, that's current, and I absolutely do not. I mean, I've got to be honest, going through the Grammy voting process was almost humiliating. Like, I have not even heard of most of the people who are nominated. And obviously, these are people who've had very successful records, because as much as you'd love to say it's only about quality, it is obviously not. I mean, it's always the most successful records are the ones nominated in the major categories. I have not heard any of them. Did it make you want to go listen to them? Not particularly. I mean, it should, and I will, and I I, yeah. I will do that, and I love getting recommendations from people to listen to stuff, but my personal taste is not very mainstream at all, and my listening is all very wide and weird. Like, I listen, I almost never listen to music, only because I'm constantly listening to music for work, so when I stop yeah. working, I don't really want to go put a record on most of the time. I need to take a break from it, and since the first lockdown... I really haven't left the house. So I'm working, if I'm busy, I'm working seven days a week, which I don't normally like to do, but like, there's not much point in taking the weekend off to kind of sit around thinking about the work I'm going to do. Cause it's <laughs> not like I'm going to go do anything <laughs> in its place. So, right. yeah. So I don't know how I stay current. I try and just do, I mean, it does, it's like your question about, you know, the different genres earlier on. I don't do anything different ever when I'm working. And obviously what I like changes and I evolve as a listener and my taste changes and I learn things and whatever. But like I watch tons of videos of other people, like all mm -hmm. the mix of the masters and the pure mix videos. I watch them all. And it sometimes I will screenshot something like, ooh, I never thought of doing that. Yeah, but most of the time, it's just exactly what I hope people get from what I talk about, which is just how are these people thinking about what they're hearing? How are they making the decisions that they make? So is that just experience? Is it just by doing and by making mistakes and then just figuring out what the mistake was and changing it for the next time? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that. And then, I mean, there's the the problem or the good thing is that there, there's really no such thing as a mistake, right? Because there's no right way to do anything. Anything can work, but it's the ability to turn something that someone might say is a mistake into something that people actually want to hear. Right. And that, yeah. And it look, it does take lots and lots and lots of practice. But then again, there's some people who come out of the womb with everything sounding incredible. Right. I mean, you know, we talked about Al Schmidt, but you don't have to go very far into his career to find the first record he did that just sounds better than anything you've ever done in your life. Like that guy was amazing. And obviously he had incredible mentors and stuff right. like that. But he there's an element of the innate talent. And some people just have it to a level that is insane. 
it transcends whether or not they know what they're doing. It will be mm -hmm. incredible. And then I think the rest of us just work really, really hard at it. Do you think that some people are just born with those golden ears? Yeah, but it's it's not even just the ears. Like you were saying before, you hear it in your head, perfect. Yeah. But it just stays in your head. It's how do you make that come out of the speakers and have that be something that people agree is amazing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are some people who just have that talent. Yeah, absolutely. Like I vividly remember at University of Miami, so in the mid 80s, Neil Avron was there. He's an amazing yeah. producer and mixer. Yeah. And his stuff sounded like records from the second I heard what he was doing. Now, maybe he made 50 records in high school with local bands. I mean, I have no yeah. idea. But like he was obviously just an unbelievable talent right away. So, yeah, there are some people who are just incredible from the very beginning. When we were doing in-person events and I worked with Waves and we'd go to different schools and different venues, it always seemed that the people were most interested in failures of whoever was speaking and not in a bad way, but they wanted to know, okay, if I fail, what do I do? How do I keep going forward? So you tell me as a famous person how you failed and how you overcame it. Well, I think famous is a stretch, but- Well, well-known. I mean, look, I've- <sighs> I fail constantly. Every time you get mixed notes, it means you failed. Like it's it's just the gig. All you can ever hope for is that you haven't failed. Like to have some fabulous success and whatever, that's random and has nothing to do with you. Right. The failure is you didn't get it right the first time. Um, so, you know, I can't like I never erased something that I shouldn't have. I'm lucky. I never, you know, back in the tape days, I didn't right. like punch in over a solo I shouldn't have. I mean, I made plenty of bad punches. Like, oh, now I need you to sing that again and continue because my punch out was no good. Like there's, yeah. you know, lots and lots of that. Um, but, you know, the failures are just like you send a mix that you've been working on and you really think like, oh, this is amazing. And the artist just, they hate it. They don't like your direction. They don't like what you're doing. And, and you just then figure out what it is that they do want and try and make that happen. Because if you're, if you're an engineer or a mixer, it's never about what you think. If you're a producer, sometimes it's about what you think, mm -hmm. but unless you're the artist, it's almost never about what you think and what you want, but you have some creative thing that you're delivering that hopefully is close to what they want and whatever. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a specific story about the failure or anything like that, but it's just you just tr are constantly trying to figure out why there are notes. Mm -hmm. What don't they like? What will they like? And how quickly can I get there? So it's just adapting and moving forward and not just getting stuck in the whole, oh, my God, they didn't like it. Yeah, don't get stuck in that. And to me, it's equally as dangerous to get stuck in the they don't like it, they must be wrong. Oh, see, I would never even think that. <laughs> oh, there, there are plenty of people who do. But yeah, I don't I don't subscribe to that at all. Do you have a favorite song that you worked on? And I'm not saying because everyone else isn't as good, but is there something that you've done that just when you hear it still, it's just you just love it? Well, there's actually quite a bit of the low roar stuff. Um, that's the band I mentioned. And he's a really good friend of mine. And we're very collaborative. I mean, I'm basically in the band when we make the records. I would never yeah. go live, but I co-produce with uh, Ryan, and who is the artist, and then also Mike Lindsay, who's worked on the last four records now with us. So the three of us sort of co-produce and each record is kind of different, but I play lots of instruments. I do string arrangements. I do all kinds of stuff that I don't do on other records. So those records are very, very personal to me and I still really like them. I mean, we've already, we've done five full length records 
He's already writing demos for the sixth. We've done a couple of EPs and he's managed to actually make a career doing it. So I'm super, super proud of that fact that Mm -hmm. I've been part of something that has made somebody be able to have a career being an artist. So that is incredible. Um, I mean, a lot of the Chili Peppers stuff, like I can still remember being in my car in LA at a red light and there was someone in a convertible next to me blasting Danny California. Uh And that's pretty fucking cool. Like, that's awesome. But it wasn't because, oh, that's my favorite Chili Pepper song. It's like, I mixed that and now everybody likes it and it's out in the world. And so that's always just a huge, huge thrill when you see, you can actually witness somebody enjoying something that you've had a part in that you can not take credit for, but you can feel proud of, you know, Mm -hmm. you have some sense of ownership of. Um, So that's happened with everything I've ever done that's been even slightly successful in a way. Yeah, I can't imagine the feeling when you first hear someone else playing it, like in the car. Yeah. Just knowing that you were part of something that is affecting so many different people. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. But then the flip side of that is it is equally as depressing when you've made records that you think are just incredible. Like made a record, um, I helped, I recorded and mixed and like helped out a little bit with arrangements, whatever, but it was produced by um, Guy Ares and uh, Emerson Swinford, both amazing musicians. This album for Randy Coleman who's Dabney Coleman's son. He's gone on and he still has a career as a songwriter. He's super, super talented. But we made a record with him that, I mean, I listened to it in the car with my wife, I don't know, a month ago or something like that. And it's still great. And nobody's ever heard it. Nobody's ever heard it. And it's amazing. What's it called? Um, I can't remember the name of the record, but it's it's the first Randy Coleman record. And it's on okay. it's on streaming services and stuff. And it's fantastic. And it still actually sounds good to me. And it's uh, yeah. So th- it's just as bad when you do stuff and nobody hears it as it is great when you do stuff and people do hear it. What's your favorite thing about being an engineer? Um, I mean, my favorite moment is always when someone says, that's it. Approved. It's like, oh, great. I won't have to fail on that one anymore. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you know, winning Grammys was pretty spectacular. Like, that's incredible. So I say that those were good moments. Where are your Grammys now? Uh, They are on the mantle of a little fireplace in what would be the lounge if anyone ever came over. But it's where, like, Debbie and I watch TV at night. It's it's like the humble brag thing. They're out, but they're not in a trophy case. They're not in my bathroom, but they're, you know. <laughs> and they're not doorstops. No, no. I mean, they're awesome. To, to get that sort of recognition from your peers is amazing. I mean, there lots of people have plenty of complaints about the process and blah, 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 blah. But when you get one, it's pretty cool. There's something about winning. Yes. <laughs> Even though it is really an honor to be nominated. Yeah, I I want to win though. I want that trophy. Yeah, look, and it's not like I've won any engineering ones. So I'm not pretending I've won one because of me. It's the albums I've worked on that have won them, and then I someone gave me a statue. Like, sure, but I'll take it. You're part of the process. Yeah. Okay. Last question. This is my favorite one. I'm coming to visit you. Where are we going to go? What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? And what are we going to talk about? Wow. Well, we're going to go to pubs. We're definitely going to go to pubs. But one of the things that we will go to, which is 15 minutes from my house, is John Bonham's grave. Wow. He is buried in a tiny little village churchyard, 15 minutes from here. And it's where he grew up. 
and his father was a carpenter and built lots of the houses you can see from there. It is an amazing place. And this tiny little unassuming church that has a guest book and a map on the wall with a pin in it for where everybody has come from to see John's grave. And the, the gravestone is covered in drumsticks and lighters and coins and notes. And so it, it's amazing. It's um, a good start to our evening. Yeah. So we would we would go there and then then lots of pubs. We would eat pub food. We'd have some fish and chips. We'd have a curry. Definitely the two staples of British food. Mm -hmm. All the food here is good. It's strangely the one thing that's hard to find is Italian food. It makes no sense to me, but there aren't that many Italian places here, at least out here. Uh -huh. um, we would drink beer, <laughs> local English I beer. It. Pub, yeah. Absolutely. No question. Uh, and what would we talk about? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess the fact that we just went and saw John Bonham's grave. <laughs> Most likely. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Thank you so much, Andrew. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we'll have to fun. do this again sometime in person. Yes. Yes. I'm looking forward to some in-person things. And I thought they were going to start until Omicron. So yeah. we'll see. It's going to be a while. Yeah. At least it sounds like you're in a great place to be in a lockdown. Yes. I can't complain. I can't complain. I can work from home. I can walk around outside. It's, yeah, it could be a lot, lot worse. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of One and Done. Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests and subscribe to our KMD Pro weekly resource guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie Lamont. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.